Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. There's been a lot of discussion about the big move that we've seen in stocks and it hitting new highs uh, today. But there's another move that I would argue has potentially even a bigger chance to affect markets on a broad uh, level. Fed funds futures. This is a way that derivatives traders bet on when the Fed will next hike rates. Uh, The Priced-in probability of a March rate hike has gone from 36% from the end of last week to more than 80% today. This is getting a lot of people's attention, including Vincent Reinhardt. He's chief economist at Standish Mellon Asset Management, and we are lucky to have Vincent in the studio with us in Bloomberg 1130. Vincent, why has there been such a huge move in expectations for a March rate hike? Uh, Because Federal Reserve officials wanted it to happen, i.e., At the Fed, you never surprise markets. You can't act if it isn't priced in. They are sometimes willing to disappoint markets, i.e. not act even though it's priced in. Uh, At 30% of probability of policy action, the March meeting was off the table. That was too much of a surprise. If you want the meeting to be live, you've got to get that probability a little higher. But I just, I'm struggling with that interpretation because we did not hear definitive language out of the Federal Reserve officials who have spoken, uh, at least certainly not Until yesterday. Until yesterday, right. We did see some yesterday. Uh, But before that, the the probability was rising. So what was it that triggered this? Yeah, yesterday, Presidents Dudley and Williams confirmed the rise. What, what specifically did they say that confirmed it? Uh, they said that the meeting is live, that March is definitely on the table. John, uh, President Dudley said that the uh, case is uh, stronger, I believe. And President Williams said the argument for acting in March is it makes the po- possibility of three t- more than three tightenings in 2017 possible. So they ratified the pickup in the Fed funds futures and added a bit to it. I think the move you had from the end of last week into the beginning of this week was importantly uh, shaped by the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the minutes from the January meeting. Uh, There was a front page headline saying that the Federal Reserve's minutes showed that it was eyeing aggressive rate increases. Nobody else covering the minutes characterized it that way. Not your reporters on Bloom- at Bloomberg. It was a pretty anodyne set of uh, descriptions of the economy and even-handed. Uh, I, I used to sign them, and it's for six or seven years. I know when you're not sending a message, and there was no message there. But for a Wall Street Journal reporter to lean that far ahead would s- suggest to me they had a little help, that perhaps some Federal Reserve officials suggested that markets had misinterpreted the minutes. They had 
to be so anodyne. And in fact, there was a message there. Well, as a professional Fed watcher, and just as you uh, recalled, uh, a former uh, employee of the, the Federal Reserve, Bank of New York, you're also an uh, economist for the Federal Open Market uh, Committee. Uh, what do you make of that? How is, uh, broaden that out to just give us more detail based on your experience. So the Federal Reserve works with markets. And it is important that uh, well, these are people, right? I mean, they, 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 it's not an amorphous. It's a big splash. marble building. Yeah, I know. There are, and there are a lot of people in it. I would yes. imagine. Yeah. Okay. So staff at the Federal Reserve are desirous not to be out of sync with markets. That if they are trying to convey a particular message, and they don't hear it received correctly, they may help to nudge the ship back into the appropriate course. The fact that one Wall Street Journal reporter was different than everybody else and subsequent Federal Reserve officials told a story confirming that view makes me think that he got a little nudged. How, how often did uh, members of the Federal Reserve do this type of thing where they uh, would go to one reporter often, uh, Hilsenrath was formerly the, the reporter. Uh, how often do they sort of lean on one person to kind of get the message right? Um, so there's two different parts to the story. The one is in normally just talking with market participants, um, Federal Reserve staff, both the board and, and the Reserve Bank presidents uh, would be trying to tell a consistent story. And if it was currently different than what was in markets, then they were revealing some news. Uh, the outright shaping a story by going to a reporter and trying to, to nudge things along, that's usually done at a higher level. All right. So now we've, we've taken that into consideration. Give us your view. What will happen March? What is it? The, the 14th? Uh, so, so now we got an, an eight, eight and 10 chance of policy action priced in. Um, the, the case isn't closed yet, even though it's a little stronger in, in terms of President Dudley's view, because Sherry Yellen speaks at the end of the week. She can take that punch bowl away if she wants to. <laughs> well, what do you make of the fact that the increase in shorter-term rates has led to a flattening of the yield curve? In other words, the bond market seems to be suggesting that a sooner rate hike will dampen growth and remove some of the momentum that we've seen. So they're pricing in a Fed mistake. It's a little bit like December of last year when the Fed tightening a quarter point, just a quarter point, snuck in at the end of 2016, uh, seemed to vow to to conveyed the view the Fed was serious in tightening four times in 2016. Uh, market participants viewed that as, as inappropriate, and there was a big sell-off. Uh, and over the course of last year, Fed guidance has been coming down closer to where markets are. To get the idea that there may be three or four tightenings this year is 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 pulling guidance away from where markets are. And so that they're thinking there's a mistake involved. I want to thank you very much. Vincent Reinhardt joining us, a chief economist, Standish Mellon Asset Management. Fox, I hear there was a speech last night. Did you hear anything about that? Yes. Not only did I hear that there was a speech, but I uh, 
watch. I did watch it. And yeah, I, I think it was it. our uh, our president, President Trump, speaking uh, to uh, Joint uh, Congress yesterday. And uh, for some impressions, Neil Duane is here with us, global strategist uh, for Allianz Global Investors, which has four hundred and eighty-one billion dollars under management. So, Neil, what was your number one takeaway from uh, President Trump's speech? Um, <clears throat> well, I've now watched two: his inauguration uh, speech and the one last night. That's it. My my, my takeaway was actually that I was quite impressed with him, maybe for the first time as an orator. I felt he pitched uh, the the gravity of the situation very well and came over as very presidential. I think as an investor, though, we didn't learn any more. And I think when one saw the body language and the reactions to many of his comments in the uh, in his speech, you could see how divided uh, Congress is. So I think when we come to now the execution of the Trump agenda, we're going to see uh, what gridlock looks like in in uh, in Congress. So, do you think that the rally that we're seeing today, particularly in financials, is a head fake? Well, I, I'm I'm very concerned that we've already had quite a strong rally. I think financials are now up 25 percent since he was elected. I think we can get too carried away with the opportunities to maybe soften regulation. Um, or change the you know the DOL rules and, and and some of the things that Trump has been talking about. I don't necessarily see that they are central to what he wants to achieve in terms of making America great again. The the U.S. financials are well well financed. They're well structured. They work in a very competitive industry, as we know, with the price competition now between Fidelity and Schwab in the in the brokerage business. And I would argue there's overcapacity in the banking industry, so margins are going to remain under pressure. But if people are uh, want to borrow, at least the US banks have the capacity to lend. A lot of banks in Europe are still very financially weak and cannot create the credit that the uh, that the economy is, is requires. Neil, I'm wondering if you could just give people a little bit of your background, because I know that you previously were at Kleinwort Benson, and that may be an old <laughs> name for people to remember. Uh, and then uh, maybe tr- uh, transition into telling us about China. The world isn't just all about uh, one person. It's important, but I just want to get your thoughts, because I know you've written a piece yes. about uh, yeah. taking advantage, perhaps, of what we what most people don't know about what's going on in China. Yes, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I've spent 14 years working in Frankfurt, so I do feel as an Englishman, I have a, a view on Europe, which is not necessarily what you get from every Londoner who come, comes across. We're going to get that view in a second, okay. too. Um, but I think, I think actually at the moment that China's very interesting because we're about to get the new um, government formed for the next five to 10 years. And so I think for us, 2017 is, is going to be a year of stability, all other things being equal. And I think where... President Xi Jinping goes is going to be very important to the rebalancing of China and therefore the growth prospects for for all of us uh, uh, global citizens. But what I would then finish by saying is, of course, the unknown at this moment in time, and he was, to your opening question, very elliptical about it last night, was what is his position on China and trade? President Trump, that is. Yes, President Trump. Um, Because I think there is a a concern that he said on day one in the White House, I'm going to, you know, accuse them of currency manipulation. And we're nowhere near that. But clearly, for global investors and for the global economy, any sign of tariffs or trade friction is going to be bad news for us. I I want to do get to Europe. There was a story on the Bloomberg today about an HSBC study showing that uh, a a good amount of money is flowing out of U.S. equities and into European stocks. Are you seeing this? Um, We're seeing it at the the margin. But I I think when I travel around the world, I think many investors have known they've got it right by being long the U.S., including many U.S. investors. But when one looks at just the headline valuations of the U.S. against, say, Asian or, or European markets, I think there's a sense that the opportunities now lie 
outside the US equity market in general. But I think what we're also seeing, and I think that is also driving you know, the, the rally at the moment in the US, is people are now losing money in their bond, market, bond portfolios. You know, yields are rising. They've been They've been supported by enormous quantities of QE and monetary policy, which is now waxing. And therefore, we're now going to get ourselves into a situation where bond portfolios are generating no return or negative return. And the only prospect for most clients is to invest in the equity market where we're going to see some reflation and stimulus rather than more austerity, which, of course, is what we've seen in the last five years. As an expert in putting together portfolios with different assets all over the world, uh, what is it uh, that you would recommend right now to investors? What should they sell? We've got a S and P five hundred <laughs> at uh, twenty three eighty nine, and I'm wondering what would they? What do you recommend selling in order to rebalance? Well, I think I tend to feel I I have two conversations in my role as a strategist with our clients. Some clients are looking to make money on their capital, and therefore I think you inevitably have to own the equity markets because the bond markets have become so so mispriced through the quantitative easing. But a lot of clients look at the headlines, look at the news you're carrying almost every day about politics somewhere around the world and go, oh, the world feels a risky place, maybe I'll just hunt for income. And therefore I think what would I be buying is things like US high yield, where you can get 5 or 6% returns quite safely in dollars, or Asia or emerging market bonds. Thanks very much for joining us. Neil Duane is the global strategist for Allianz Global Investors, uh, giving us a real uh, sort of diverse uh, response to uh, last night's speech by uh, President Donald Trump. You know, Lisa Abramowitz, some of the wonderful things in the stock market are just expressions of human demand or human want because you know that Snap, the parent company of Snapchat, is hoping to raise $3 billion with an initial public offering. And I thought, what better way to sort of phrase the, the conversation about this with Paul Sweeney, our head of uh, director of North American Research, media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he'll tell us whether he uses Snapchat. But um, is this a silly, fun app for people with more time than sense? Or, Paul Sweeney, is it a trailblazing technology company with vending machines? <laughs> well, it depends who you ask. I think if you talk to their demographic, which is the younger demographic, 18 to 24, 18 to 34, uh, maybe even a little bit younger than that, it is absolutely, absolutely a utility for them. And, and in fact, the, the engagement, which is something the company talks about a lot, uh, is very high on Snapchat. So, Is um, that a loyal demographic? Um, historically, no. Um, so we'll have to see how it ages uh, on this platform. And, you know, one of the concerns is um, that this younger de demographic can, uh, you know, not that loyal and that the new next cool thing that comes along, they could just uh, leave Snapchat or Facebook or wherever they are to go to the new cool thing. So that's certainly a risk. But, you know, right now, Snapchat's talking about uh, we may not be the biggest. That would be Facebook with close to 2 billion monthly users. Uh, but our users are younger, which advertisers love, and they're very engaged, which is another thing advertisers like. Uh, so that is clearly the pitch that Snapchat 
makes to Madison Avenue and to advertisers and also to investors. So does just to give a sense of how significant this IPO is, are there other technology companies sort of waiting in the wings to see how this Snap IPO goes to figure out whether they should also uh, go the same route this year? I think so. I think if you think about some of the, the unicorns out there, most notable would probably be Uber, um, uh, Airbnb, uh, for example. So there's a lot of companies out there that have been very successful raising capital in the private market. It's been a very liquid and very efficient market for them over the last several years. But at some point, they and their initial investors need liquidity, and that typically is achieved through a, an IPO. So I think this Snap IPO is going to be not only important for uh, Snap itself and their investors, but really the technolo- technology sector overall, maybe even the, the whole uh, New Deal calendar overall, but certainly for some of these tech investors to see how far uh, public investors will go in terms of valuation, in terms of going out on the risk curve for some of these newer companies. Um, so I think that's going to be that, that makes this deal important on many levels. Do you get a chance to talk to anyone about the roadshow? Yeah, the uh, the roadshow. Uh, they tell you, know, you about the thirty-five minute video. Uh, the thirty-five minute video, which kind of about Evan Spiegel and his twelve million dollar house in Los Angeles, <laughs> right? And and he didn't show up. I understand at the uh, Boston uh, lunch, but um, so but it's this is a company that because of this video they can go right to Q and A. And I've heard that uh, you know it's been standing room only at most of these uh, lunch meetings at some of the big uh, cities they've been in: London, New York, Boston, San Francisco. So the demand is clear there, but the, uh, the the challenging questions are also there, and some of the common ones obviously are uh, the relatively small size of the uh, Snapchat uh, uh, platform versus, say, a Facebook, uh, but also the slowing user growth. It's still growing very quickly, but the growth rate is slowing, and is that a concern? I it was almost flat for all of last year. No, no. I mean, they're, yeah. they're still adding a lot of subscribers, but the growth rate is, is clearly slowing, and, and, you know, the question for, uh, you know, um, investors is, gee, we've kind of been... Uh, become accustomed to seeing these billion dollar, uh, billion user platforms like Facebook, uh, and uh, if, if you don't get there, what does that mean? Right, for but this, they got fifty million, right? Fifty million users last year uh, were added, and then they said five million in the last quarter of right. The, that 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 that's right. So sixteen, yeah. So uh, the, again, that is clearly a concern. And so again, what the Snap is—they lost half a billion last year. They lost half a billion, or about four hundred million in revenue. Cares, but make uh, money, lose exactly, money. what's the difference? You know, the revenue growth is certainly there again money like the app yeah exactly uh they had 400 million of revenue last year uh you know street consensus net estimates are kind of out there for a billion this year maybe two billion next year and maybe three billion the year after that um so clearly the revenue growth story is there but uh, there's definitely some issues uh, that investors are concerned about uh including you know the fact that no shareholders will get any votes whatsoever it's not that you get a a smaller vote than the founders you get zero votes and that is very unusual um and that is uh, obviously a concern for some investors so uh from from new media to old, uh, we also are getting news about Time Inc. and how they're looking uh, for potential suitors to, to submit formal bids uh, for acquiring the company by next week. This is according to a New York Times story that came out. Uh, on the news, Time shares are up almost 7%. What do you make of this? Yeah, this is a company that's been arguably up for sale uh, for a long time. Alex Sherman, of uh, our MA reporter at Bloomberg News, has been all over the story for, for many months. And, uh, you know, I think the issue here is there's, um, even though the, the magazine business, like all publishing businesses, are greatly challenged in terms of advertising growth and subscription growth, um, it is a, you know, there's virtual very little growth, if any, in the magazine business. However, some of these brands are still very relevant in the marketplace, and, and Time Inc. 
clearly has uh, with with uh, People Magazine and Sports Illustrated some of the you know the best brands in the magazine business. So clearly, there's interest from from certain players, whether it's private equity um, or even some strategic buyers, such as a Meredith, for example, who's been in talks. So there's clearly some interest Edgar in these Bronfman. assets. Edgar Bronfman, absolutely, who's got a lot of experience in media. And I just want to correct myself. Alex Sherman actually did break the story. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, you know so the, surprisingly there, there's a lot of interest in these uh, marquee properties because um, you know a lot of people feel like magazines can in fact live in a digital world um, that advertisers them, will just, support them. But are we talking about it, it can, maybe we need to think of new terms for it because magazine obviously refers to some paper product that you hold which they may or may not continue to print but when you take a look at everything that they publish whether it is health magazine, travel and leisure, entertainment uh, weekly, coastal I mean departure, it just goes on and on. There's, that's content and Last time I checked, you got to have something to put on the internet. To that's keep right, busy. and that's right. And so uh, it all comes down to brands, the value of brands, whether it's in an analog world, ink on paper, or in a digital world. You, you'll, you'll hear even all the big media companies, whether it's Viacom or Time Warner. Not talk about their cable networks. They talk about their brands. ESPN is a brand. Um, CNN is a brand and things like that. Fox News is a brand. And so the question is, can you monetize those brands in a digital world? And that's very true for the magazine company um, as well. And they've really spent a lot of money kind of pruning their brands and their, their portfolio and trying to you know, make sure that they can live in a digital world and get paid, whether it's through advertising or subscriptions. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. A lot to talk about and a lot to keep track of. Going forward, Director of North American Research and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I want to bring in Bloomberg's own Eric Schatzker now to give us more detail about Ray Dalio stepping down as the co-chief executive of co Bridgewater. Interim chief co interim chief executive officer. I'm getting the – I can't keep the titles in check. Here. A much easier way to think about this, Pim and it's his, Lisa, it's his company, is isn't it? another management shakeup at Bridgewater. Another, all right. Yes. How big the is the firm? The one constant at Bridgewater about. is Ray Dalio. He runs the world's largest hedge fund manager – Bridgewater has in excess of $150 billion under management. Its pure alpha fund has historically been one of the most successful. Bridgewater also was at the forefront, the vanguard of the creation of risk parity funds. The all-weather fund is the risk parity fund Bridgewater runs. Well, but and Eric, that's exactly advanced why advanced 11.6% is... what, what last year. Risk parity fund. It's so you know what? Funny. I'm going to say that's a bit of a diversion and suggest that we get back to what happened to right, Bridgewater. So what happened? John Rubenstein, the former Apple executive. 16 years at Apple. Whom Steve Jobs. Ray Dalio brought in last year to be co-CEO, is leaving after only 10 months. Why? Ray Dalio himself says in a statement, we mutually agree that he, meaning Rubenstein, is not a cultural fit for Bridgewater. Bridgewater is an unusual place. Some people would go so far as to say it's an odd place. John Rubenstein was an odd hire. He was brought in as a leader and also as a technology pioneer. Ray says he was successful in creating a new technology architecture for Bridgewater, but clearly as a co-CEO, it really didn't work out. The big issue here is that it hasn't worked out for Bridgewater on a management level in a long time. Eileen Murray, who remains a co-CEO, was brought in back in 2009. She's still there, but Bridgewater has experimented now 
with Rubenstein, with Greg Jensen, who was once a co-CEO and remains a co-CIO, with Dalio himself as a co-CEO. Nothing seems to work. Okay, so so yes, we have known that it is an odd place and has an idiosyncratic way uh, uh, of managing its culture beyond the gossip factor. What's the practical implication of the turnover here? I mean, Bridgewater is, as you pointed out, Eric, the biggest hedge fund firm in the world, at least believed to be. And uh, yet they've continued to see inflows, despite the fact that so, other hedge funds have seen outflows. They've continued to, do, you know, to deliver performance. So what's the implication? Well, the big practical question is how is it going to affect investment performance? If you believe Ray Dalio, this is going to help the co-chief investment officers remain focused on managing the $150 billion pile. That's what the limited partners, the LPs, the investors in Bridgewater's funds should care about. The problem is that this creates a diversion. These constant, This constant management turnover has been a distraction and a diversion for Ray, the founder, the chairman, and until now, the interim chief executive, co-chief executive officer. So if this way, yeah. works, if Eileen, and David McCormick, who's been at Bridgewater for eight years as a former Treasury Undersecretary, can together run this firm in a way that Ray approves of that will allow him and Bob Prince and Greg Jensen together, the three co-chief investment officers, to worry about generating returns. They're a macro fund. Pure Alpha, Pure Alpha 2 is a macro fund. We know how challenged the macro strategy has been. Pure Alpha 2 generated a 2.6%, excuse me, 2.4% return last year. Not great, but better than a lot of other macro funds. The investors want more. Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be following this as we learn more. And this is a, a, a story that does have implications about for the broader market, given just the size of it and its importance to the hedge fund world. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.